Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Dr. Todd Whitaker. He is an amazing educator, speaker, author, and idea generator. He has an inspiring focus and a fun outlook on the whole wide world. Join us as we talk about climate, culture, motivating people, AI, and so much more. Thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, uh, just being here. And uh, by the way, it would be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and left a review. Could you do that for me? You know, just take you a second just to do that. You could, you could give me five stars and uh, how about some really nice words hmm? <laughs> uh, you can also do that by going into your uh, podcast platform app like uh, apple and and scroll below the podcast artwork and go down there and you'll see the star possibilities as well as uh, where you can leave a comment or two thanks for doing that thanks for listening and uh, enjoy the show it's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests, and they share what they know. So crank it up to ten and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Dr. Todd Whitaker has been fortunate to be able to blend his passion with his career. Recognized as a leading presenter in the field of education, his message about the importance of teaching has resonated with hundreds of thousands of educators around the world. Todd is a professor of educational leadership at the University of Missouri and professor emeritus at Indiana State University. He has spent his life pursuing his love of education by researching and studying effective teachers and principals. Prior to moving into higher education, he was a math teacher and basketball coach in Missouri. Todd then served as a principal at the middle school, junior high, and high school levels. He was also a middle school coordinator in charge of staffing, curriculum, and technology for the opening of new middle schools. One of the nation's leading authorities on staff motivation, teacher leadership, and principal effectiveness, Todd has written over 60 books, including the national bestseller, What Great Teachers Do Differently. Other titles include Dealing with Difficult Teachers, 10-Minute In-Service, Your First Year, What Great Principals Do Differently, Motivating and Inspiring Teachers, and Dealing with Difficult Parents. Todd is married to Beth, also a former teacher and principal, who is currently a faculty member of educational leadership at the University of Missouri and Professor Emeritus at Indiana State University. They are the parents of three children, Catherine, Madeline, and Harrison. Todd, it's so cool to have you back on the show. Say hi to everyone. Well, hello, everyone. And Steve, it's such an honor for me to have a chance to join you again. Uh, it's amazing. It's been, I think, four years and both of us look younger, which is really kind of an incredible feat. I like that. Uh, one thing I do ask to remind the audience, though, if, if you could please, is that remember the camera's 10 pounds and I got like nine cameras on me. So if they could do the math, that would be helpful <laughs> and make me feel there. But Anytime I have a chance to connect with educators, I feel like I'm the lucky one in that relationship. Awesome. And uh, and you do that, too. That's actually something I'm going to talk to you about in just a second. But, it, you know, it's it's so cool to have you back on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. And um, I'm also looking forward to you because in my in my work role at North Georgia RESA in, uh, in North Georgia, uh, we got you coming uh, soon to talk to leaders here on June 5th and uh, do a cool workshop and stuff. And uh, so what I'd like to do is let's start by talking about you as a professional educational leadership consultant. What do you like best about working with educators? You know, Steve, this is kind of an interesting thing because I've never thought of myself as a consultant or a speaker. <laughs> gotcha. I literally think of myself as an educator. And the thing I most like about being in education, I was actually in law school and my undergraduate business administration. Then I got in law school and I realized, you know what? I want educators as my peer group. That's really it. I love working with people who every day want to make a difference in their lives. 
and in the lives of others. And that is such a gift that they give. And the fact that I can connect with them, hopefully offer support with them, maybe once in a while give them an idea, but I learn easily more from them than they learn from me. So I've never seen myself as a consultant. I really haven't. And it's kind of a strange thing because there is a group of people that do consider themselves consultants. And I think a lot of them are my friends, but I don't think they're my peer group. Because when we get together, they talk about their, uh, where do they have seniority on their flights? What hotel chains do they stay at? And you know what I talk about? What's the best school you've been to recently? Tell me something neat that they're doing at the secondary level in your state. What are they doing? Because that's what I care about. And so it's just kind of an interesting thing. And, and, and I take that as a compliment, but it's, that's, that's just not the way I view myself. I truly don't. I just think I'm an educator. I feel like I'm teaching a class. There just happens to be different people in class every day. I love that. That is so awesome. And it, it actually lends itself right into what I wanted to make sure that people know. It's something that's really cool is you can always tell where you've been working someplace or talking someplace because all they got to do is then go to your Twitter feed and they see you interacting with, with all kinds of teachers and educators. I mean, they're asking you questions, they're talking to you, you're giving them answers and stuff like this, and you're just really busy like that. And I was like, what, what made you do that? I mean, what, um, just to, because that takes time to, to, respond to people like that, especially right after you've been talking. So you, there are hundreds of people that may be talking to you. Yeah. And you know, and interesting, I also have people contact me directly all the time. I visit with them on by my, just on the phone, we zoom together, uh, obviously email and, and use Twitter and other things. It, it's this, I, I, and it sounds kind of funny. I always say teaching is the most isolated profession and you're never alone. Yes. However, you're lonely the same way school leaders, in the sense of superintendents, principals, at, at any level, I'm, I'm not just choosing those levels, our jobs are lonely at times. And I'm a neutral outside person. And if and here's the thing I always feel like, Steve, if you ask me for guidance or direction or want to visit, I feel obligated to tell you the truth. Because if you care enough to ask, you care enough that I know you really want to know the truth. And it's hard to ask people because Asking your supervisor, and a lot of supervisors can help, but you're also they're also your supervisor. You know, and, and the sense of you're disclosing weakness or you're disclosing concern or you're disclosing, and, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. That's just a harder thing to do with someone who potentially evaluates you than a neutral outsider who's on your side. You know, the other thing I used to tell my teachers this, and believe it or not, I tell my wife this. You can ask me anything you want. I'll always tell you the truth, and I won't hurt your feelings. And that's a safe environment. And I want them to have that opportunity for that cushion because it, it is hard. And I know we have colleagues. I know we have people we work with. And that's great. But a, just a neutral outsider who potentially can possibly frame things in a different way than they've been thinking. Uh, it's an it's an honor for me. That's that's why I do what I do. I'm just trying to make a difference. And that gives me a chance to make a difference on just a different level. That's so awesome because, you know, just to go back to a couple like the different levels. I mean, if you talk to your supervisor, some supervisors, you take the risk of showing them that you have a weakness or something like this. And you may be af- afraid of that. And, uh, or you may be afraid of just like you said a second ago, that what they might say might be hurtful. <laughs> and, right. uh, you know, why don't sure. you know that or something? Right. Exactly. You feel like, well, I should know, I don't know. And I don't know who to ask that I won't feel ashamed about. And so, you know, if, if I can serve in that role for people, Anytime, I think it's an honor for, you know, for them. If they choose to ask me, it's an honor. And I'm the least I can do is give them my time and 
my viewpoint, even if my viewpoint's wrong, they can all, that's the good thing is if you ask me, you can always ignore me and I'll never know the difference. <laughs> nice. Nice. I like that. Just as a note, it, whenever I, uh, I mentioned, you know, that, uh, um, going to be talking to Todd Whitaker or reading one of your books or something like this. It's really cool because a lot of times you find the people who say, you know, it's really cool because he responds to me when I've, when I've uh, tweeted to him or something like this, or, or I've emailed him or I've, you know, um, talked with him actually. And I think it's cool because that's how it, that's your re- reputation is out there that way. And it's so cool. Mm-hmm. So kudos. Well, since you. my wife won't talk to me, I need, I'm grasping. <laughs> I am just grasping every day. Nice, nice. And you know, what's weird. I don't even blame her. I mean, so keep that in mind. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm glad that you have an outlet. <laughs> we all need one. You know, some people have hobbies. So uh, anyhow, we all need one. Nice. I like that. So, so let's talk about this school world we're, we're in right now. It's difficult to ignore that there's been a growing wave of teachers passing on teaching and going to other industries. I mean, could you talk about what challenges in schools most influence this quitting or running away from teaching during the current era? Yeah, um, you know, I think that there's factors that are new and factors that are have always been there. Um, one of the factors that's always been there is teaching is really hard. It's really hard. And it's not the hours, even though we work long hours, it's the intensity. What is an uninterrupted lunch? What does that even mean? You know, I mean, right. think about it, our jobs are so stressful. It's at least 730 at night before we can get go get settled in on the toilet. You know, I mean, that's a that's a hard job. And most jobs aren't that hard. You know, they're, they're not, It's but it's the intensity of the job. So that's always been there. Gotcha. The economy, even though we talk about the economy is bad, the economy as far as jobs is unbelievable. The best it's you know ever been for such a long period of time. So there's also alternatives. And if salary on, and, and teachers aren't necessarily in it for the salary, but at some point the discretion between your job and a job you could get, when there's lots of jobs available, and the salaries of educators haven't moved up, that's another appeal. But those are some of the historic things that the job market has changed to some degree. The other thing is just the kind of demonization of teachers. You know, talking about teachers grooming and talking about kitty litter in classrooms and talking about all sorts of things like that. I think that keeps people from going in and it causes people to leave early. It's not worth it, especially whenever I can stay in my town, work less hard, and make whatever amount uh, more money. Um, you know, one of the things I think that's really important, and I share this with people all the time, is that, you know, I work with charter schools, public schools, and private schools, and I work with all three because they have kids in the building. If they didn't have students in the building, I wouldn't work with all three, but they do. However, one of the things I help people try to understand, legislators and other people, is we don't have three pools of teachers. See, we don't have a charter school pool and a public school pool and a private school pool, but we have one pool and all three of those are drawing from it. So when we demonize or hurt that pool or taint that pool or make it smaller, all of those areas suffer. And there's really no reason to be a proponent of charter schools if there's no teachers. There's really no benefit of having vouchers if there's no, no teachers to serve the students. And I think that's one of the things that we could collectively come together and realize the importance. The other thing is the pandemic was very difficult, but the pandemic, as much as anything else, proved the value of teachers. You know, I I tell people all the time, if during the pandemic you gave uh, standardized tests and your test scores fell, quit being defensive. It shows you matter. You have concrete proof that you matter. 
you know, it, you're, it should be scary if your test score skyrocketed during the pandemic. That means you don't matter. That would be bad. <laughs> and, and what we've learned is a lot of other things don't matter. You know, bank branches have closed, restaurants have closed. They're never going to reopen, mainly because they don't matter. We tried closing schools, and guess what we found out? They matter a lot. And it's not just language arts. It's not just math. It's also social interaction. It's um, uh, the ability to work with others. That's how critical schools are to a community. And that's a that's a lot to put on people. But educators know it's a lot, and they, they got into it because they want to make that kind of a difference. It's, it's just a lot. It's, it's so powerful what you're talking about because that's you know, it's always been tough. I mean, there's always been things that you have to do. If you're if you are really a teacher, there's there's so much stuff that you do that's beyond this you know you know beyond what might be written down that you do, and it's because you see it as your job to connect with the kids and to make to figure out what their needs are and to do you, whether you call it um, personalization, whether you call it uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's always been those teachers who have spent the time trying to figure out what's going to help Steve or help Todd get to that next level of understanding. Well, there's no, there's, there was never any money for that or never anything else or, or, you know, something beyond it's, it's, it's always been part of that job. I, 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 I coached uh, goalies for a brand new pair of soccer goalies for a brand new pair of soccer goalie gloves. I mean, that's, <laughs> Right. And they surprised me because at the end of the season, they gave me a $200 check. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know that right. was coming. I did. You know, I, I said, they asked me what the, what I wanted. I said, well, if I could get a brand new pair of gloves, that'd be awesome. And I got that yeah. and I was happy. And then, you know, I got surprised with a $200 check. But Right. Well, and, and I think the other thing is also, if previously you had two students that were struggling behaviorally and now you have four Maybe that's not the line, but at some point when it becomes six or when it becomes eight, I think that also adds to it. Uh, the other thing I think we do know from the pandemic is when people say anyone can teach, I always tell them, you got your crack during the pandemic. How'd that work out for you? You know, and it turns out maybe everyone can't teach, you know, and uh, I, I think it's funny when people are mad schools are closed and say anyone can teach. I tell them, pick a team. Right. You can't think anyone can teach and then be mad schools are closed. <laughs> You got to choose a team on that one. But I think it's it's just hard. It's always been hard. Um, and that just raised the pressure. You know, it, it's interesting. We talk about first responders. And I was at a school district recently in which the superintendent thanks, thanks the teachers and principals because they go, you know what? You all have been first responders for three years now. Nice. And that's not putting down other you know, law enforcement and firemen and that is just another part people that are on the front line every day. And, um, and I think that's hard. That's a, that's a challenge. And especially if you don't feel valued for it, if you feel put down or insulted or attacked for it, because some States, you know, we feel like they're not passing legislation, they're passing implication. And if you feel at that point of not sure where you're at, that potentially sways you in a different direction. And the, the irony is, uh, you all know this probably, the Gallup poll uh, that came out in September had, the, they rate, how do you view schools and how do you view local schools? The view of local schools had the largest increase it's ever had in 37 years. <laughs> and you know why? Because people know how hard it was. They know how difficult it was. And whether we're mad they closed or didn't, we still know it's hard. And I think they appreciate the efforts of the educators in their communities. And 
you know, whatever our schools are like now or what our communities are going to be like in five years. So you better work hard to have really good schools because that's going to become your community. So, so right on the money, you know, it's, uh, I, I can't leave this subject without saying, you know, one of the things that teachers discovered during, uh, during, um, the, the time of doing virtual teaching and so forth as, as some people out there were saying, well, we just, we really don't need all those teachers. We'll just do it virtually. And, you know, and one of the things that happened is that kids discovered they could turn you off, right? They could, right. you know, <laughs> I could, they I could discover that in classrooms too, but it's just harder when yes. you're uh, yeah, in person versus online, right? Whereas when you're at home and you got all your stuff right there, I got to do is just turn that video camera off and say, well, you know, I really don't want you to see my house and, uh, and turn that thing off and then you can go do whatever you want. <laughs> you know, it's like, sure, right. No. And, and it's just a personal connection that's lost. Right. And the thing we also missed was the student socialization with each other, you know, them learning how to behave appropriately in other settings. And that's one of the other benefits that we need from schools is that they have the opportunity to learn how to regulate themselves, how to interact with others, learn how to, I mean, you know, sort of like the kindergarten share, you know, and be friends and that type of thing. We, we miss that, you know, it's a, it's a terrible miss when we have it. And all of us got it to some degree during the pandemic. You know, there were things you missed. You didn't have the opportunity to do these activities or these things, and you missed it as part of your life. And with kids, that's a really critical uh, component. Very much so. Very much so. All right, all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch this up just a little bit. We're gonna get into s some things about uh, the school. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about. Uh, could you, sh you know, something that you hear people talk a lot about is they talk about school climate or they talk about school culture, and these are two terms that are often used interchangeably. And I was just wondering if we could kind of we're gonna go down this path where first we need to know what's the difference. Okay. Um, climate is something that can change, that does change and can change day to day. You know, you, if you pull the fire alarm, that changes the climate. If you find out you got a snow day tomorrow and it gets announced at noon, that changes the climate. If, uh, you know, things like that change, your, your climate is like the mood, you know, and we all have different moods, different days. And culture is sort of the underlying current of everything. Climate would be at faculty meetings. We pretend to listen. We nod in agreement. Culture means in the parking lot, we're going, I ain't going to do that. You know, that's the difference between climate and culture. Um, a couple of things. One, if you want to change your culture, two things you never say are change in culture. Nice. Because the culture's number one thing, it never wants to change. It has no interest in ever changing. Uh, the other thing about climate and culture that's interesting, there really is no such thing as climate and culture. It all only exists in people's heads. So if you can change the stories in people's heads, climate and culture change. But if you can't change the stories in people's heads, climate and culture never change. But here's the way to think about this. Most of the time when you change a culture, it starts with changing the climate. Here's an example. If we, if, if tomorrow every teacher in a school treated every student with respect and dignity. Not that most of them don't, but I'm saying if everyone tomorrow in a school treated every student with respect and dignity, that would change the climate. If they never change back, that changes the culture. If we decide to greet the kids tomorrow, and every teacher just greets the kids when they come in the room, calls them by name, however, whatever greets the kids means to you. If we all haven't been doing that, but tomorrow, we all greet the kids, that changes the climate. And if we never stop, it changes the culture. And where it moves from culture to climate, our climate to culture, I don't have any idea, but it's irrelevant. 
So I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I've, you know, I've if, if, if tomorrow all of us come to work, even in a forced way, happy and perky, that changes the climate. And if we never go back, it changes the culture. I got you. And, the, and, and that lends itself to something that, that um, what I'm thinking about when I'm asking you to, to talk about this, which is, um, yeah, the role that teachers play in uh, shaping the culture of the school. I mean, because, you know, some of it is very obvious of what you just said. And I just wonder if you just kind of comment about that uh, a little bit about that. You know, they really have a powerful place yeah. that they they play. Culture is kind of the compilation of everyone in the school. You know, um, the other thing I think it's funny because I've written four books on culture and my biggest has, and I wrote it with a culture expert, Steve Gruner. He's truly a culture expert, the, the biggest culture expert in the country. Um, and what's interesting is my biggest hesitation was I didn't want people to use culture as an excuse. I didn't want people to say, well, it's the culture. Nothing we do, it's the culture. You know, because think about ineffective people and how they say, it's the kids, it's the parents, it's the superintendent, it's the budget, it's the, you know, whatever. And effective people never do that they don't want to give away that much power they want it to be them that has the influence not some outside force and ineffective people want the outside force to be in the influence not them um and so that's part of that what was the question i know i'm i'm actually getting to it i just forgot what it was what i was asking was uh, what is that role that um teachers can play in shaping the culture that they really have a lot of power there right personally i think in a school if you, I think it's more the leader that has the most influence in culture. No question. I think if you swap the word leadership for culture, you probably could say the same things. I don't think you have a poor culture. I think you probably have a poor leader. I don't think you have a dysfunctional culture. I think you have a dysfunctional leader and not necessarily on the day they started because they haven't had that influence yet. But if you've been there for any length of time, you start to influence that. The individual people in there can help, you know, Teachers can move the culture forward by pushing at the edge of the most positive people in the culture. What happens is, it's really funny, if the culture's dysfunctional, positive teachers close their door because people feel threatened when there's teachers that are doing better than other people. If the principal's no good, then, uh, I mean, if the principal's really good, negative teachers close their door because they want to keep the good out. And it's if you think of it that way. And so as a teacher, the best thing I can do is be highly effective and then look to add people to start a subgroup in a school. The future culture is always a subculture. And in, in my opinion, in schools, the best place to start if you want to change a culture is to build subcultures of your best teachers and your new teachers. Because with your new teachers, it's not new to them. They don't even know any difference. And with your best teachers, they'll do it right, and they always put the kids first. And so, for example, if you want teachers to go in each other's rooms, and I believe we have to, I, in a school to really improve, I think we have to get teachers in each other's classrooms in non-judgmental, non-evaluative ways. And I always start that with the points of least resistance, which are the best teachers and the new teachers. Because if they go in each other's rooms in a mutual exchange, so there's not a pecking order there, it's a mutual exchange, the new teachers will learn so much from the best teachers and the best teachers, and by best, I mean well-rounded, kind people in addition to highly effective in the classroom, the best teachers will at least pretend they learned something from the new teachers. Because they're going to take care of the new teachers. They're not going to hurt their feelings. They're going to make them feel valued. They're going to make them feel important. And what happens is now you have two people that believe in the swap. And you know what you start with? The next least resistant person. Another new teacher or maybe a veteran who's also 
willing to join that club. And at some point, the people who don't do it are the ones that feel outsiders. And right now, in most schools, the ones that do do it would feel like the outsiders. This is so powerful. This is, uh, you know, because it lends itself to a lot of stuff. Just a note, I'll take a sidetrack here with a story. I, you know, I was, uh, did change in schools and I was, uh, that's, that's how I market myself. You know, so if you hired me to be a principal, you're hiring me to come in and do something change some part of the atmosphere or something. And uh, in this one school, I've been there for a couple of years and we were real focused on, on uh, academic vocabulary and so forth and doing all this. And we've been just working on this, working on this. And uh, um, the county had a new school opening and this rumor went through the school that I was leaving and going there. And so I said to the whole faculty, I said, I have, no one has asked me to go there. I have not told them I want to go there. Therefore I believe that I will be here in the fall, right? Right. So in the, the fall comes and I'm there and, uh, and and I went around and I was kind of looking at classrooms, especially I was visiting some classrooms that I knew would be right on the money, doing all kinds of things and, uh, you know, and just be exciting to visit. And um, first two I went to, you know, some of the stuff that we've been working on with academic vocabulary wasn't happening. <laughs> And uh, and I went to one of those teachers at the break, and I said, uh, "Hey, I noticed that uh, you weren't doing anything with that." And and uh, she said, "Well, you know, some of us didn't think you were coming back." And I said, <laughs> "I said, what do you mean you didn't think I was coming back?" And she said, "Yeah, we thought you were going to the new school." And I said, "I told everybody I'm not going to the new school." Yeah. And and it made it made me realize that they were doing it because Maletto said, right, and. So I had to have a conversation with the whole staff. I said, this is not about Maletto. This is, this is, I've been trying to show you this is best practice. This is, this is trying to help the kids achieve their dreams and all kinds of stuff like this, not because Maletto said. They were just trying to wait. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a quick example between culture and climate. I took over a school that literally looked like an abandoned mental hospital. Wow. I, I am not kidding. Had six floors, no elevator. Uh, the outside of the building was spray painted with stuff and had been for 20, 30 years, insulting things outside. I mean, inside looked terrible. The first thing I wanted to do, I believe you as a new principal do positive, visible, non-threatening changes. And so I want the school to look alive, exciting myself and the custodians paint colorful stripes all around the school. This is an eighth grade center, you know, so it's not a, it's not even an elementary, it's a secondary school, colorful stripes all around the building. I had parent volunteers come in and put decorate the entranceway. The office was so alive and exciting. We had um, uh, things done in the cafeteria, the, the areas, the teacher's lounge had tablecloths and chairs. And, and I had teachers starting to do their rooms and, and decorate. I mean, it literally looked completely like a different school. A solid teacher, not a, not a superstar, but a solid teacher, after a year and a half, came up to me and said, I mean, the school you know, was in the paper. They had TVs there, everything. It was unbelievable how much difference it was. And I had a solid teacher come up to me and go, Todd, so it's okay if we put stuff on our bulletin boards? Oh, my gosh. Because the environment for 20 years was we don't. Wow. And it took a year and a half of seeing all that. But do you see how that infiltrated the culture? And when I was first doing it, it was the climate, even though teachers were buying in just one at a time. And it finally got to this teacher who didn't want to be left out because, see, the culture had moved. So this teacher is now following the culture. And she wasn't bad, just kind of nervous, not innovative, you know, kind of reluctant. 
has been beaten down because of just the environment in there. But do you see how I had to start moving the climate to move the culture? And then the laggards, the only way they fit in is now go with the culture. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I always remember that. And this teacher couldn't have been more sincere. There wasn't a smart aleck or rudeness. She was, she was relieved to have permission to do it. It just took a year and a half for her to have trust that there could be permission to make her own room look attractive and make it look like she wanted it to look like. Wow. That's just, it tells you how, how much it, um, the prior existence was, you know, part of their everyday life, I guess is the point is that, no, you can't do this. <laughs> right. And then if I'm really good, the only way I can really spread my wings in a dysfunctional culture is leave. Right. And, and it's interesting because you, you'd mentioned you were a change agent. I don't believe you. I think you were an improvement agent. See, there's a difference between change and improvement. Great teachers at times resist change. They never resist improvement. Nice. Crummy teachers always resist improvement, but at times they don't resist change because change could mean they do less. And see, great people have no interest in change. They have an interest in improvement. Gotcha. And ineffective people are always resistant to improvement, but they do not always resist change, if that makes any sense. Oh, it does. I think, you are, I think you are an improvement agent, not a change agent. Appreciate that. <laughs> Good stuff. I This is, uh, oh my gosh, I could talk to you about this part for days. <laughs> so, well, um, uh, Steve, to your audience, it seems like we have talked for days. So anyhow, <laughs> what can we do here? So, uh, that's just because of me. I don't mean every, you know, I, I tell people, uh, they go, can you present for like an hour or a day? I go, if I present for an hour, it seems like a day. So it's very <laughs> similar in terms of that. Nice, nice. The, uh, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure that I, as I, uh, as we're talking about this, is that we get to something that you, you do a lot of uh, writing and talking about, which is motivating people. I mean, you know, if you were given advice to school principals about motivating people during difficult times, which is kind of where we are now, you got a lot of sure. things happening. Uh, we're you know, I don't know how many people are saying, yeah, sure. I'll coach those goalies for 200 for the, for the new gloves. <laughs> um, and you determine which gloves I get or whatever. The, uh, I'll be a Michael Jackson goalie and do it for one glove. That's yeah, what I'll do there you go. Glove. There you go. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're to give advice to school principals about motivating people during this time and age, uh, what's something you'd, you'd say? Okay. And first of all, what's interesting is cause I do things on motivating people during difficult times. I just think everything's a difficult time. So I don't think there is a difference. What happens is if you haven't been motivating during difficult times, it reaches a breaking point. But the good people have always been doing it and the poor people don't ever do it. And that's how come for poor people, the difficult times, you know, the pandemic really exposed us, whether we were good or not, in my opinion. But I think there's a couple of things. One thing is treat everybody with respect and dignity every single day. There are a few things more powerful than a well-placed compliment. Make every decision based on your best people and you never make a wrong decision. And it has to be a constant drumbeat. Uh, uh, morale and motivation is never an event. You know, understand this. I think it's funny when a principal kisses a pig, but whether you're good or not depends. If you're good or not, depends whether they're laughing with you or at you. Gotcha. And so I think it's every day, I think you'd be in classrooms, you make people feel special, you make them feel important, you make them feel supported. Um, the other thing I think, and this is, it's interesting because I'm writing a book called How to Get All Teachers to Be Like the Best Teachers, because in my mind, that's the only solution. Because in every school, uh, 
anywhere in the world, you have at least one teacher that's cracked the Da Vinci code <laughs> and you don't need to innovate. You need to replicate. Right. If all the teachers were like your best teacher, your school would be completely different. No matter what school you're in, Steve, that's, I mean, I'm not talking to the people who just have dysfunctional schools, the best school in the world, the difference between your best teacher and your worst teacher is a cavern. It's not a sliver. So we can't pretend they're the same. Um, and the thing I've learned, and this is what I try to do when I present, whether I do it or not, I don't know. Uh, when I present is I think the principals also have to teach their teachers, not tell their teachers. You can't mandate effectiveness. You know, think about the simplest thing. We talked about student behavior and challenges now. What percent of teachers would like their job better if they were better at managing their classroom? 100%. Because it's selfish. Right. You know, if any of us could get our kids to behave better, we'd get our kids to behave better. Nobody holds back on that. Right. If you have children, I have three children, and I really like two of them. But anyhow, <laughs> what's interesting is they don't know which two it is. They're always trying to figure that out. But what's interesting is... Um, if I could get my kids, my kids are great, but if I could get my kids to behave better, I would get my kids to behave better because it benefits my favorite person in the family, me. <laughs> and if understand this, what percent of teachers would significantly like their job better if they could get their kids to behave better? I don't know, but it's a high percentage. It's three fourths of the teachers would, it would make a significant difference. Well, what happens is we tell teachers to get their kids to behave better and we've got to teach them to get their kids to behave better. It's like, Steve, you ever heard anybody I've been told to raise their test scores. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you know anybody who's been holding back on that? I'm no. just asking here. Do you know anybody who keeps a little slack in the line when it comes to their test scores? Yeah, not at all. <laughs> and what happens is when I tell people to raise their test scores, they know I don't know how to teach them to do it. Because if I could teach them to do it, I'd teach them to do it. So as a principal, just think if the principal could teach the teachers how to manage their classes better. Not tell them to, but teach them. Ever, the the ever, great principles, without exception, without exceptions, have faculty meetings teachers look forward to and value. Average principles, without exception, either have don't have faculty meetings or people don't look forward to and value. Well, what's interesting is average people think I make people look forward to it by showing them a cool YouTube clip or having cupcakes. And I like frosting, Steve. I love to lick <laughs> the frosting off cupcakes and throw the rest of the cupcake in the trash can. <laughs> But what's interesting is I think people value your faculty meetings if they come in and they can immediately implement something successfully in their classroom. That's motivation in my part. The fact you're going, oh, I could do this would help in my third hour class. This would make a difference with our group right after lunch. This would you see. And to me, that's motivation. And I think it's just teaching. It's like I teach superintendents this all the time. The minimum goal of every meeting you ever have with principals is you want principals to be more excited about principal and tomorrow than they were today. The minimum goal as a principal is I want my teachers to be more excited about teaching tomorrow than they were today. Why do I suck the life out of people? I don't even get it. And at central office, it's the same way. And my principal friends, if any of them are listening, how many of you have ever been to a meeting at central office where you wanted to take a letter opener and stick it in your thigh to make sure you're still alive? I mean, just understand that. <laughs> And I can't, but if I teach you something that you can immediately implement that will make you more successful, that's morale. That's motivation. In addition to stroking, valuing, making you feel important, making you feel significant, that I'm also doing that. But I'm teaching you also because, you know, think about that. We are teachers. We want to get better. You know, we want to learn. Learning's exciting. 
when you learn things that are applicable to what it is that you have an interest in. And so in my mind, that's the core of what we do um, to be motivating. In addition to notes and comments and you know if you've read motivating inspiring teachers i talk about sending christmas cards to the parents of faculty and staff members with personal notes with pictures on them and talking about how much that means that they're in your school that's an event but understand if i treat you with respect and dignity every day that's really a nice thing but if i don't that's a joke you know it's like a principle that's not valued bringing candy bars to the faculty meeting. Nobody cares. You're afraid they're poisoned. <laughs> right. You know, you, you, they bring your favorite candy and you're going, I'm allergic to this. You know I mean? That's, <laughs> that's what happens if people, I, I used to, we used to, I, as a middle school principal, high school principal and a junior high principal and at a middle school, we'd have a spring festival and we'd have a dunking booth, you know, the old dunking booth where people oh, would yeah. sit on it <laughs> yes. and the kids would line up and teachers and principals and everybody get on the dunking booth and take turns. And we do it for charity fundraiser. I mean, it's cost like a nickel. It was nothing to it. Anyhow, what's interesting is kids would line up for two teachers, the best and the worst. The best because they wanted to connect the worst because this was their one chance at revenge. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> yes. and it's it's understanding that, but making people feel valued and important. And I, I go in teachers classrooms and I give them, I don't. What happens is everything about evaluation is wrong. It's just wrong. It's done by average people. A lot of them are well-known people, educational consultants. And what happens is um, they they feel like that every time they go in a classroom, I need to leave feedback. That's exhausting. That is exhausting. Just think of every time you interacted with your own children, you felt the need to fill out a form and hand it to them. They don't even want to be around you, and you don't want to be around them because it's exhausting. And I always say, go in classrooms on a regular basis, look for the good parts, even if you have to squint, you know, and praise them and value them. And, and once they feel like you have credibility, now they want to know your opinion. But until you have credibility, they don't want to know your opinion. And I think the other thing, and this is part of, of the support, I'm in a principal preparation program at University of Missouri, and I was in Indiana State prior, prior to that. And I have people who take in their first principal's job. You know, and they'll go, um, Todd, they wanted a male and I'm a female. They wanted a female and I'm a male. They wanted someone internal. I'm external. They wanted someone external. I'm internal. Wanted someone older. I'm younger. They want someone younger and older. And I go, all that matters till the first kid's sent to the office. And then none of that matters. And if the teachers feel you're supportive, they don't care what your background is. And if they feel you're not supportive, they don't care what your background is. And so it's it's those type of things on a regular and consistent basis that not only build morale, but the regular and consistent moves it from climate to culture. If that makes any sense. Yes, it does. It's you know? so awesome. And the other thing is a leader, and this, you know, my first book was dealing with difficult teachers. And what's funny is you think you get all sorts of flack about it, but you know what happens? Good teachers have been waiting for that book forever. <laughs> right. And I wrote it because I was a middle school principal and you can't hide a crummy teacher at a middle school. Because uh, every day the kids are on the hunt for weakness, you know, but one of the things to understand is you also gain support and build morale and build culture. If you do have a couple of really negative people who are ineffective and you do something about them and you start by trying to improve them. And with a lot of people that works and with a few people, it doesn't. 
And it's sort of like if you have a teacher that bullies other teachers, and I'm amazed how many principals say the teachers need to stand up to them. And I say, no, you need to stand up to them. That's not the teacher's job. You know what I used to tell my teacher, Steve? How about this? I'll make you a deal. You take care of the kids. I'll take care of the adults. Nice. My teachers would line up for that. You take care of the kids. I'll take care of the adults. It isn't a teacher's job to stand up to a negative teacher. No. That's like a, a teacher. And, and that's like thinking if you have kids, do you expect your kids to fix their friends? <laughs> no, you expect your kids to do what's right, even when their friends do wrong. Right. And that's a tough enough standard. Do you know what I expect teachers to do? I don't expect them to stand up to the bully teacher. That's my job. I expect them to do right, even when the other teachers do wrong. And that's a tough enough job. That's a plenty tough job because the culture wants you to do wrong if everyone else is doing wrong. But I can't move it to culture unless some of the people start doing it right. And then I'll deal with the people who are doing it wrong. Love that. Love it. The, uh, you know, I, we're almost finished. I got a couple of things, last things that I want to ask you about. And, and, uh, and you brought up some all kinds of cool other stuff too, but let's go here. Um, you cannot be in this world today without hearing something about AI. All right. And I know this is, isn't necessarily your, but your thing, but at the same time, I mean, we're, we're movie fans. We've talked a little bit about movies before the recording started. Uh, you know, one of my all time, uh, um, at least two parts of it are my favorite because I never stay awake during uh, parts of 2001 Space Odyssey. I mean, there's <laughs> there's the beginning, and uh, then I and then uh, then I wake up in time to see Dave dealing with Hal, and uh, and you know Hal decides that Dave doesn't need to exist any longer, and it, and and so we kind of have this weird thing that's happened where all of a sudden people are panicking over something that uh, um, has some really cool power to it about helping us write better or give some, you know, not waste time on, you know, you know, thinking through some of the, you know, the type of things that would, you know, we might get into arguments over. It actually give us some thoughts about how to start a project or something like this. And uh, there's a lot of people afraid that Hal has suddenly come into existence and is telling them that they they may not. What do you think about, uh, um, you know, all this stuff about uh, AI and where we might be going? Well, a week ago, I had written 61 books. Since AI came out, I got 940. <laughs> and so I think it's great. No, I'm just kidding about that. Nice. <laughs> um, it's like anything with technology. It's a, it's something that can benefit us used in the right way. And I always say it's like this. It's whether you use your superpowers for good or evil. You know, and um, and I think that the best people use the superpowers for good. The worst people use the superpowers for evil. And the problem's always still people, not programs. Because the good people are going to use it for good and the bad people are going to use it for bad. And it's always people, not programs. You know, it's interesting. One of the things during the pandemic when we went virtual literally overnight and, um, you know, everyone everywhere was on the same playing field. None of us got to practice. I always say the hardest part about going virtual was we didn't have a dress rehearsal. We just had opening night. Right. You know, no one got to practice. We're all in the exact same boat. What's interesting is, though, is that you knew, and think about this, in every school, when you went virtual overnight with no practice, everyone could name three teachers they knew were going to figure it out, and everyone could name three teachers they knew were never going to figure it out. And when we've come back in person, we also realize the three teachers that couldn't figure out virtual haven't figured out in person either. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and that's because of the quality of the of people within an organization, any organization, and your best people 
figure it out. They're going to do it correctly. They're going to help all of us learn how the best way to use AI or not use AI, depending on what the circumstance is. And they're we have to learn from them. And that's the come you make every decision based on your best people and you never make a wrong decision because they're going to figure out the best way to utilize it, the best way to increase learning, the best way to make a difference in a positive way. I think that's so cool because that's, you know, you listen to people panicking. It's like, I, you know, I remember in 1980-something or early, late 70-something, I'm, you know, I, I had this little device called a TI-30, I think. And uh, I can remember one teacher telling us all as we were asking to be, are we going to be able to use it on the test? And she announced to everyone that, uh, you know, you're not going to have a calculator with you wherever you go, so you need to learn how to do this without the calculator. And right. and she was a language arts teacher, which is really scary. But anyhow, go ahead. <laughs> the irony of it all is that... I do have a calculator with me wherever I go, but the I just think about that in terms of uh, um, where we might be going with all this stuff, and I just think it's uh, it has its possibilities. And I love your thought about uh, good versus evil type thing. Well, I also think that the change oftentimes isn't quite as rapid as we think. I wrote an article one time called "So When Are We Going Metric." <laughs> Because, I mean, I was told the next day we are going metric. I mean, I, I watched the old Disney. I'm old, as you know. I watched Disney, and everybody's going to have a backpack in six months. You know, and we're going to have a flying backpack in six months. Right. And I've been waiting for mine. Every Christmas, I open up all the presents, and I it's haven't seen there. it in there. And I know that at some point, we're going to just take one pill, and that'll replace all of our meals. And we're going to I'm in that, and our hands are going to turn to pods because we're not going to be using them anymore. And... So sometimes the transition isn't quite as quick as uh, mentally we're thinking. And I'm, 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 not, I'm not yelling at a cloud guy. I'm just saying, if we think back, uh, and it was funny because the reason I wrote the article, so when are we going metric? I was keynoting in a state conference and they called me a month before and said they found someone new who was a futurist. And I go, a futurist, yeah, they're going to tell us all about the future. And that's the come I wrote the article. And I said, ask them when we're going to go metric. You know, nice. and that's the come I wrote the article. I like that. And it's somebody who still presents on stuff and talks about stuff and everything. Nothing's ever come true that I've ever heard them say. <laughs> um, but I always thought that was kind of an interest. They told a story. This was probably 30 years ago. They told a story in front of a group that they were in Cleveland and they went into McDonald's that had no employees and everything was done virtually. And there's no employees there. And within a, three months, every McDonald's will be like this. This was in the 80s in Cleveland. <laughs> nice. nice. I raised my hand. And I know the person was nervous because I raised my hand. I raised my hand and I called him and I go, how come that hasn't made USA today? <laughs> you think like a McDonald's that has everything's no, no people. I think it'd make USA today, you know. And I did see now they do have a McDonald's that just came open a month ago that potentially doesn't have employees. But somehow or another, that person who was painting the picture was obviously lying, but in addition, uh, possibly foreshadowing the future in a way that wasn't the same as, uh, uh, I'm still waiting for my flying car. I don't know if you've got yours yet, but I'm waiting for my flying car. So, yeah, don't, uh, don't have that one. <laughs> yes, right, right. And but you could ask AI when we're going to get our flying car. Is it chat GPT or whatever? But you could ask them when we're getting our flying car and they'd be able to tell you. Interesting. Yes. That's what an interesting thought. I, you know, it's, it is f funny, just like you're talking about, because you have those things that people say, yeah, we're going to be go doing this by this, whatever. And like the McDonald's thing, I'm one of those people that drive them nuts because I walk in and I say, um, do I really have to go to the kiosk in order to get 
a drink because oh, I, <laughs> I don't really want to scroll through all that stuff and use my card to get a drink. And they're right. like, no, sir, come on up here and I'll take care of you. But they're they're trying hard right now. They've got yes. uh, right. And, and it's not a service thing. It's just a cost reduction thing. Right. But, right. but I'm not being critical of them doing it. I'm just saying that somebody said 50 years ago it was going to be <laughs> here in a week. Right. You know, and they were already pretending it was there. And I don't even know where they came up with that story. So because uh, I was going to go visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then hit the McDonald's. But it uh, <laughs> turns out there it wasn't open yet. I like that. Um, so, and that was right when the Rolling Stones were just starting. Nice. Uh, anyway. <laughs> nice. Uh, so. I got a, just the last couple of things I want to ask you, but before I do that, uh, um, before we go, if someone wanted to co- connect further with you, where would you send them? I mean, you, I'm going to put out there your website and stuff like this, or um, yeah. anything also you want me to put in the show notes with that? Yeah. Well, I could give them my probation officer's number, but I don't know that they want me to give it out. But anyhow, a couple of things. My website's toddwhitaker.com and my contact information's on there and I don't have any people. So when they're sending it, I get stuff. I mean, I, I get 25 requests a week to present or whatever. And it's funny because they're always going, could you have someone get in touch with me? And I say, you're not going to like this, but I don't have any people. So you're stuck (laughs) with me. So that's one Twitter. I'm at Todd Whitaker. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Todd, I think it's Todd Whitaker. I don't know, but you can find me. Um, uh, I'm on uh, Facebook. I'm on Instagram, Instagram. I think I'm Todd Whitaker one. So, you know, whatever, but I, and they can DM me on Twitter. I love to hear from people. I hear from people literally every day. Very cool. I'll put all that information in the show notes. And he does. And by the way, he doesn't have people because I've asked him that same question. And <laughs> do you want me to contact your people? And he's like, uh, I am my people. Yes. Yeah, so but if we have somebody who wants to be my people, they can also <laughs> reach out and touch me. Touch base with uh, ToddWhitaker.com and go from there. Very cool. So just a note, Todd, by the way, that makes it so much easier when it's just you. All right. So <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you know what's funny? I'm the only speaker I know that doesn't require contracts. And I, I assign them, as you know, right. but I don't require them. And what's weird is I've worked with over 2,000 places and it's never been a problem. Nice. And the only reason I, and what's funny, we do contracts because we want to, because we want to, we're worried somebody's going to steal from us. And you know what I've learned? Thieves are the first ones to lock their doors. <laughs> it's funny that way, isn't it? <laughs> and it's, for me, it's like, nice. you know? It's people I trust. If you don't trust, and I, I don't, you can cancel anytime you want. Any of that stuff makes any difference. I, I just think we're, we're blessed. That's part of the education world. That's how come I promote Twitter for educators because I know there's all sorts of political things and different things on Twitter, but it's who you follow. Educators are so kind. They're so nice. You know, they, they got into education because they care, and that's reflected in Twitter. You know, I've written four books with people I've met on Twitter, three of whom I've still never met. Nice. Yeah, because I saw their tweets and I knew they were smarter than me. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So, uh, two last questions I want to ask you. Yeah. Um, and the first one uh, goes like this: You know, one of the things that's happened um, in our world is that we have, uh, we definitely have something, whatever you want to call it, whether you call it a generation gap or an age gap or something like this. But you have the potential of a. 59-year-old administrator working with a 24-year-old teacher, which means that that teacher may have grown up with nothing but, uh, you know, has no concept whatsoever of some of the old TV shows that I find very, (laughs) have some unique fondness of. But they, you know, whatever their technology level that they're at, that their world may be different. Do you have any suggestions for that 59-year-old for figuring out how to work with this generation of new teachers and so forth and how they can kind of come together. 
Steve, I'm going to let you down. I don't even think there's any difference. When have we not had a generation gap? When, when has that not been in place? You know what? If it was insurmountable, your best teachers would all be 23 because there's a generation gap between them and the students, you know, yes. isn't it weird? I think the thing that we make the biggest mistake, we sort by completely arbitrary things. It isn't veteran teachers and new teachers. It isn't this and this it's effective and ineffective. You know what? Do you know any principles that are 55 or older who are outstanding? And I bet you also know some principles that are 55 and older that are crummy. And I bet you know some teachers that are under 25 that are outstanding. And I bet you know some teachers that are under 25 that are crummy. It's not a generation gap. Ineffective people hope it's a generation gap. They wish it was a generation gap. You know, I, I don't. I have three more minutes because I've got another podcast I have to do here in three minutes. So keep this in mind. But I, I go to. There's two Starbucks I go to. I don't drink coffee as you. This is me without caffeine. So keep that in mind. Um, and I get my wife a coffee every day. And there's two Starbucks. One of them I go to. I walk in and they go, Hey Todd, how you doing today? Hey Todd, how you doing today? Hey, how's it going? You want that coffee for your wife? We've got it ready already because I saw your car pull up. Whatever. The other one I walk in. Literally in seven years, they never act like they even know who I am. And it's the same person that works there. And uh, right after the pandemic, the person, both Starbucks closed for a while, then they reopened and there were short staff. And the one that was never has had good service, I go in and he goes, I go, hey, how's it I go, you're lone wolf in it today. He was the only one there that weren't employees. And he goes, yeah, he goes, because of those extra uh, 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 unemployment benefits, you can't get anybody to work for you. You can't get anybody to work for you because of those unemployment benefits. And I go, I go, I go, what's weird is, um, I know where some of your former workers are. And he goes, where? I go, at the other Starbucks. <laughs> and you know what's weird? They're not getting paid anymore. The unemployment benefits are exactly the same. They just don't have to work with you. Nice. And you'd like to pretend it's the unemployment benefits, but it isn't. And what happens is they're going to hang on to that. Like they'd ha like to hang on to generation gap. Like they'd hang like to hang on to technology. They, the ineffective people want something besides them to be the problem. You know, you've heard me, you may have heard me talk about participation trophies. And isn't that funny when a coach talks about, I can't motivate the players because of participation trophies. I go, you know who else got them? And he goes, who? And I said, the team that beat you last night. <laughs> but you're using it as an excuse and it's irrelevant to them. Your best teacher never talks about participation trophies and your worst teacher talks about it all the time because the worst teacher hopes it's participation trophies. Because if it isn't participation trophies, the worst teacher has nothing to do except look in the mirror. And they're not going to like what they see. So that's my answer to that, Steve. And I'm not pretending there's never been a difference. However, effective people, all thread goes through everything. Oh, I love it, that. It just goes through everything. I love that so much. That's so awesome. Yeah. The best teacher at a school of 45 is the best teacher in the school of 55. You got that right. Good you know. Good and the worst teacher in a school of 45 is the worst teacher in a school of 55. I, and I don't mean they can never change and have little tweaks, but in, I'm talking about in a generalized way, that's true. Love that answer. Thank you so much. I, you know, the, and I said I had two questions because the last question I wanted to ask you is, can we do this again? This is cool. <laughs> oh, I, it's a treat for me. Yeah. No, next time I'll have the, my funny stuff. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, uh, Todd, the, the other day I spoke to a group of 100,000 people on, on, on Zoom as a worldwide thing. And somebody goes, do you like dealing with people, this bigger group? And I said, well, if a group gets big enough, somebody will think I'm funny. And usually we're about two people short. 
nice, nice. Well, oh, anyhow, but Steve, I'm honored. You're you're a leading educator in the country. You know, you used to be a change change agent, but now you're an improvement agent. So uh, you could do it as well as anybody else, and it's a, an honor for me to have a chance to connect. Well, thank you so much, Todd, and I uh, and I appreciate it. And I got to tell you, it's so awesome catching up, and awesome having you ha- here. And I wish the best in all you do. Thank you very much, and thank you everyone for making a difference every day. You all are showing the world how to lead, showing the world what caring is about, and I truly value it. And I'm so honored to have a connection with you, even if it's just. Uh, through the screen. Thank you very much. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.